0: Today we're going to finish up on the story of Elijah. Uh, One of us, some could say, why in the world are we talking about Elijah? I mean, he's kind of an old dude in the Old Testament, kind of a weird story. What's the point? Can I just defend for a second that we teach the Bible here because we think it's important you understand your faith. Uh, In a time when the culture has moved further and further away from historical Christianity. It is one of the sad things that there is less biblical literacy than ever so that people don't understand what Christianity really says. We, therefore we can't defend it, we don't understand it. And so uh, it's one of the things we do in our adult classes, it's one of the things we do in our sermons uh, understanding Elijah is important for understanding how the Bible fits together. And and so the first week uh, we looked at first uh, kings chapter 16 where Elijah shows up. And, and 17, and he, he tells Ahab the king, it's not going to rain until I tell it it can. And then he walks out. And God provides for him supernaturally because God wants to strengthen even his faith as a prophet. Then the next week, chapter 18, we had the duel on Mount Carmel where Elijah um, defeats 450 prophets of Baal by seeing God bring fire down from earth and consume the sacrifice as well as the altar. And the the idolatrous evil prophets of Baal are, are murdered by the people of Israel. And it seems like such a huge victory. It seems like finally this evil will be eradicated from the world of Israel. But ironically, if anything, it got worse. And Elijah spends the next uh, few verses of the scriptures running and ultimately ends up on Mount Sinai and says to God, take me. I'm the only one left. Take me, Lord. And God appears to him, if you recall, he, not in an earthquake, not in a storm, uh, but in the quiet voice of his spirit. And he comes to know God in a whole different way at that point in time. And then, and then uh, there are more instances where Ahab, the evil king, uh, steals a vineyard from a man, and 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 God causes Elijah to go for, confront him and and call down judgment on Ahab. And ironically, Ahab repents, and you, we saw God demonstrate grace even in Ahab's life. And and then God allows Elijah to see the one, Elisha, who would replace him. In other words, God fulfills His promises to Elijah that there would be one yet who would continue his work. So in these few short passages, this did I do that? We see this, this prophet who, who doesn't seem to do that much, and yet he becomes incredibly significant in the story of Scripture. Uh, today we're going to look at the, the way Elijah is treated in the rest of Scripture. And it's going to be quick, and my time is short, and, and, but I think it will help you get a better sense of it. First, I want you to look at the prophecies related to Elijah, uh, beginning in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 is the pivotal chapter in the book of Isaiah. In the first 39 chapters, God pronounces judgment on the people. And then in chapter 40, He starts to announce the salvation He will bring. And in verse 3, there is this little quick verse that says, A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. In three different New Testament verses, Matthew 3, 3, Mark 1, 3, and John 1 and 23, that is applied to John the Baptist and, and to, as a fulfillment of the Elijah prophecies. Next, I want you to turn, if you will, to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. Um, uh, In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is another verse that is often quoted. In fact, it's quoted in Matthew 11.10, Mark 1.2, and Luke 7.27. Malachi 3.1 says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Notice the same verb, preparing the way for the Lord. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Both of these messages of preparation are applied to John the Baptist in fulfillment of prophecies related related to to Elijah. Finally, turn a page to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. I'm going to go down to verse 5 because my time is short. Last two verses in the Old Testament. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. That's a quotation from Joel chapter two, verse eleven. Uh, the great and dreadful day of the Lord is a is is a summary of that time when God will bring judgment on all the earth. But God says in Malachi, in the last two verses of the Old Testament, I will send you a prophet who will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I would come and strike the land with a curse. If there is not a revival, I would destroy it all. And notice, I think it's one of the most stunning things, points in Scripture. Notice what characterizes people turning back to God. What is an indicator of true faith? Generational love. Turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. One of the primary indicators in my understanding of this passage of, of people getting further away from God is they lose intergenerational respect and love. And I've got to tell you, there is a huge, huge um, phenomenon today of adult children cutting off their parents and to cases where the parents don't even know why and, and and that's one of the reasons I love a, a multi-generational church now I'm going to tell you the truth sometimes you're a pain because it's multi-generational you don't like the same music you don't like the preacher wearing the same clothes you get grumpy about stuff I hear from you all, why do we do that? why do those old people, why do those young people why do, why do, I, I mean sometimes you're you're painful, okay but, having said that, God's intention is that there's connection between the generations because actually, according to Scripture, we need to each other. We need the wisdom of the old man and the strength of the young man. We, we need the generations to work together. And, and it is one of the great shames of my generation that we uh, brought uh, the phrase, don't trust anyone over 30, into common language. That, that we started this movement of, of disrespect between generations, both ways. Because it is, in my opinion, it is an indicator of spiritual decline when we can't get along. And, and we talk about uh, um, diversity in congregations, and, and the Lord knows we need racial diversity. Lord knows we need economic diversity. But we need generational diversity. And 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 it, one of the burdens we have as a staff is that that the generations learn from each other and love each other and, and come together. And women's ministry has done a great job of that with their link dinners and other things. But but there's so much more to be done. Okay, I'll get off that soapbox. Um, but notice in these passages, this these these verses about one who will prepare the way for the Lord, and then specifically in in chapter 4 of Malachi that it's said to be Elijah. And as we go to the New Testament, we'll see how those are quoted. Um, One other word about the prophecies related to Elijah. Because Malachi chapter 4 says there will be one uh, Elijah, I will send Elijah who will come before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, Many believe that in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses that come in the midst of the judgments of the tribulation time, one of those will be Elijah because uh, who else? Who else? Now, the interesting thing is it doesn't name Elijah as one of them, but the characteristics of what the two witnesses will do in Revelation 11 are consistent with what Elijah did in the Old Testament. Consequently, many scholars believe there's a connection. In fact, because Elijah was taken up in a chariot fire, did not die on his way to the presence of God, it seems uh, logical that he would be one that would return. But we can't say that with authority, okay? So when you look at the Old Testament prophecies related to Elijah, you have Isaiah 40 verse 3, which we'll see quoted multiple times. You have Malachi 3 verse 1, quoted multiple times. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, most significantly quoted about him. And then possibly in the Old Testament, a New Testament prophecies, Revelation 11, when it speaks of the two witnesses who will come and speak on behalf of God. So let's look at the New Testament. I told you i got to move fast. But you're smart people. You can do this. Well, there are a couple of you I'm not so sure about, but, you know. Um, Seriously, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Obviously, uh, you know that Luke uh, is the longest description of the birth of our Lord, the Christmas story. It's the one that Linus uh, quotes in Peanuts, therefore it's got to be true. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are give him the name John. By the way, sometimes Christians say, say, I'm not supposed to waste God's time in praying for my little requests. I pray for big things. That's, can I say with all due respect, and I do mean with all due respect, so that's utter nonsense. Um, uh, what is, what is Zechariah praying about? As the priest, representing all the nation of Israel, the people of God. He's praying that God will give him and Elizabeth a son. If there were ever anyone who would not be praying about something personal, it would be the priest when he goes into the holy place his one time in life. And what is he praying about? A very personal issue. It's a great illustration of the significance of that. And as he's praying, he's shocked to see an angel of the Lord show up because it didn't normally happen. (laughs) And um, he says, I've heard your prayer. And you'll have a son, and you'll give him the name John, and he will be a joy and a delight to you. Verse 14, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And many of the people are visual will bring, he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Notice the quotation of Malachi 4, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Subtle reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1. Zechariah prays for God to give him a son. He says, not only am I going to give you a son, he's going to be a prophet. Not only is he going to be a prophet, he is going to be in the power and spirit of Elijah. He is going to fulfill the intent of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that he will represent God to the people and turn them back. Pretty stout. Pretty stout. Um. But we must keep moving. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17. Back to two verses, I mean two books, Matthew 17. And I made a mistake in front of the whole first service. I referred to the wrong mountain. And I saw all the seminary guys look at me like, you're an idiot, and they were right. And, and I am here publicly confessing that I made a mistake. It's the first time. And, and <laughs> I'm so embarrassed and heartbroken that I did. Uh, Mar- Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, Moses as the lawgiver and, and Elijah as the prophet who sought to turn the people back to Israel, these two come together and are seen in the presence of the Lord. It doesn't, however, fill, fill Malachi 4, 5, and 6 because Elijah is not doing the work of the prophet here. He is merely being in the presence of, of our Savior and demonstrating who He is. Verse 5, while He was speaking, a bright cloud. Oh, and, and then Peter says, let's build shelters. Um, I personally believe that's a reference to Zechariah, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, he's saying, this is the beginning of the kingdom. You're going to come back. Let's build the shelters, the tabernacles, as Zechariah would say. In other words, it's not as loony a suggestion as it appears to us. But we'll move on. Um, so while he was speaking, there I did it again, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well, pleased. listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? By the way, I mentioned in one of the sermons, but it's important to realize that even in observant Jewish families today, Elijah is an extremely important character. They believe that that Elijah comes to help people when they're oppressed. Uh, They they believe that Elijah is mystically present in the Passover, so there's a cup for Elijah. Uh, they're all of traditional expectations. They believe Elijah is present in the circumcision of their children. They, they, they pray about Elijah in the context of their most significant religious ceremonies. So this, this sense of expecting of Elijah is, is still existing in the Jewish community today. So they're coming down from the mountain of the tabernacles. They've seen Elijah, and so the disciples say, Why Elijah, Lord? Why does he have to show up? And Jesus said, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now, before I mention that, because time is short, let me also read to you John chapter 1. And we'll pull this together. In John chapter 1, verse 15, it says, John, testifies, uh, John the Baptist testified concerning Jesus. He cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. In in Matthew 17, it says he, he, he will come as Elijah. So what's going on here? Notice Jesus said, one will come, he comes and will restore, future tense. But then he turns to say, but there's one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. I think what Jesus is saying is John the Baptist is a near fulfillment of of Elijah. One of the things I've become convinced over the years of studying Scripture is rarely do the major prophecies in Scripture have only one fulfillment. Uh, Typically or oftentimes they will have a, a, a multiple fulfillment. In other words, there'll be an initial near fulfillment, but then ultimately there's a greater fulfillment in the end times. I think this is one of those. Uh, the, The near fulfillment is that John the baptizer comes in the spirit of power of Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord and prepare the way for the Lord. But he's not the full fulfillment of Elijah. That is yet future before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is spoken of in Joel chapter two. Y'all with me? One guy, two fulfillments. Uh, so, when the prophecies speak of one who will come and be a messenger and prepare the way for the Lord, the the most uh, immediate fulfillment of that is John, who will baptize in the name of the Lord. And what will he do? He prepares the way for the Lord. He appears in his ministry before Jesus, and he calls them to change their mind to repent about their own sinfulness and about who God is and their responsibility to uh, to trust God and ultimately embrace Jesus as the Savior. But that does not preclude the reality that there will yet be another appearance of one, either literally Elijah or one in the spirit and power of Elijah, who will appear before the great judgment time when God brings judgment on evil on all things. Both are real and both are yet true. And, and so you see in Elijah this character who represents a role in and, and multiple ways throughout Scripture. And, and his role as representing uh, as one of the prophets is, first of all, that he's a messenger who prepares the way for the Lord. He prepares people to meet Jesus. And the means by which he prepares people to meet Jesus is he calls them to repentance to, to recognize their need for Jesus, to understand that, that there is a God who has a right to, to say how we should live. There is a God who has a right to determine uh, how we'll spend eternity. And as such, to respond to that God by accepting the answer he's brought to our sinfulness, which is Jesus Christ. And so Elijah represents this incredible role that even today observant Jews have a sense that he will come. They even believe that that it was Elijah whom God would send to respond to the oppressed in Judaism, whether he was seen or not. So uh, in one sense, when asked in John chapter 1 if he's Elijah, he says no, but in another sense, he is a fulfillment. Is that clear? Not really. But do you see how significant this character's role is? And it's tempting to say, okay, now we know something about Elijah. But it really doesn't fit us. So turn to James, the New Testament epistle of James. I have five minutes to land the plane. Chapter five, verse one. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self indulgence. You have fatted yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Um, I believe in capitalism. I was a business major at UT. I love this stuff. But unbridled capitalism that is amoral is not biblical. There is still a morality in every that God holds every system to. And, and that morality means that the powerless are not abused. Uh, notice how James addresses that. Uh, Uh, why are the rich condemned because they take advantage of weak people it will connect I promise verse 7 be patient then brothers until the Lord's coming well that doesn't have anything to do with that does it yeah it does it's addressed to the powerless because more often than not the first century Christians were the powerless and, 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 and so he's pronounced that those who have wealth and power who take advantage of the weak will be judged. But he says to the weak, be patient. Why? Because they're powerless. They can do nothing. Because the Lord will come. See, the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord coming is near. Don't grumble against each other. Don't turn on each other because you're in difficult times or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. As an example of patience, see the continuing theme in the face of suffering. Take the prophets. Interesting, the prophets. Who are we talking about? A prophet. Connect the dots here. Um, they spoke in the name of the Lord, and as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. And you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. All Above all, brothers, don't swear by heaven or earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Keep your heads clear and, and just keep patient as you pray, waiting for the Lord to work. What do you do when you can do nothing about your circumstances? Our our natural tendency is to blame someone else. And I can say that with authority of Scripture. What happened in the description of the first sin? Adam, did you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? The woman you gave me. um, He blamed God and the woman. So he goes to Eve, did did you eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil? Uh, The snake, it's his fault. And, and the snake slithered away. Um, uh, it's, it's a natural tendency when things get hard for us to start blaming other people. Somehow we think that will solve it. But the, the first step for a believer when things are hard is to ask God, to what extent am I responsible and confess that? But, but in times when we're powerless and it's not our responsibility, as in the first verses of this chapter, for the poor and the weak, what, what are we called to do? Be patient and look to the Lord. This all fits together. So he says, is any one of you in trouble? You should pray. Let him sing songs of praise. If any of you are sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And our elders do that when requested. Because the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Obviously, God does not always heal. Um, If he did, Christians would never die. But he does heal, and we pray actively for it. And when he says no, as Christians, we trust him. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And look who shows up. Elijah was a man just like us. How is he like us? He got discouraged and depressed. He got fearful even when he had the Lord on his side. Uh, He he had a responsibility to do before God, and yet sometimes he became weak-kneed in doing it. And what does James say? He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Interestingly, in 1 Kings it says about three years The writer of James says three and a half years specifically, which coincides with the time of spectacular judgment in the last half of the tribulation of Revelation. It's interesting what Scripture is doing here. It might have the same author. Just might. But he prayed. And he prayed and the heavens gave rain. And the earth produced its crops. So what do we make of Elijah? He's just like us. See, we don't get to set him aside as a prophet and say, well, he, he's special. He's a prophet. You know, he, he did all those miracles. He's not like us. By the authority of Scripture, I can say, Elijah's just like you and me. And, and what do we do with that? We pray. When we're powerless, we pray. When we're guilty, we confess and we pray. When we don't know what to do, we pray. When our circumstances are so discouraging as to leave us paralyzed in fear and depression, what do we do? We pray. Can I say to you, uh, we in the Bible church love the Bible. We study the Bible. I'm so proud of our adult Bible classes and the teachers we have and our women's ministry and the teachers we have. We've got better teachers in women's ministry than we do up here. It's ridiculous. I mean, it just is. Can I just say that? It's ridiculous. But Prayer is harder than Bible study. And sometimes we run to the Bible because it's easier when we should be falling on our knees. And if we want to have the power and victory of Elijah, we would pray more. That's what made Elijah special according to the Scripture. It's not because he's a prophet. It's not because he can bring fire down from heaven like the disciples were so proud of him. And what made him special was He believed that God heard and answered his prayers. Who knew? What a crazy concept. See, Elijah lived an incredibly evil time. According to Scripture, the most evil times in all of Israel. And Elijah felt totally alone in those circumstances. And he emphasizes that throughout his ministry. And Elijah felt so powerless, he asked God to take his life. So what makes Elijah so special? According to Scripture, he prayed. And we do way too much complaining, and way too much running around with our head on fire, and way too little time on our knees before the Almighty God. If we want to have the spirit and power of Elijah we would be people of prayer. Please join me. Father, we confess that our faith is weak, and we know that because we spend so little time in prayer. Thank you that you sent Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord, and I believe you will one day send him or someone like him to prepare the way before the great judgment. But Lord, in the meantime, make us people who understand that our real power is not in our titles, our offices, or anything else. It's when we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.